Hello, this is Jimbo coming to you from the pandemic. This is my podcast in which I talk about whatever the hell I want to talk about. This is a very stream of consciousness thing. This is the disclaimer I always give at the beginning of everyone, which all of you regular listeners are probably sick of hearing. But this was a podcast I started during the pandemic shelter in place. I was living alone in a one bedroom in San Francisco. And in order to not go stir crazy, I found it very cathartic to turn this thing on and just ramble about whatever I want to every so often. So this is what this is. It is a Saturday morning. I am currently sitting in my car outside of a supermarket a couple of miles from where I'm crashing uh, with my parents. And yeah, just getting, just wanted to get out of the house. It's also warm here. I, I especially like just sitting in my car because I can turn on the heat as I see fit. My parents always keep the house very, very cold. I don't know why that is, but I, I'm always freezing there. Anyway, how the hell is your pandemic going? How how are things going out there for you? Are you doing all right? You hanging in there? You managing to stay sane? Do you have a hobby that's keeping you from going completely mad? I've discovered that work is definitely very, very positive. It's a positive thing for me. It's Saturday. Uh, I felt really, really good during the work week. I had a productive week. I've been at my job for a couple months now. I can now, I can now get things done without having to lean on somebody else all the time. I can now just, you know, pick up a ticket, say, okay, I'm going to add this thing to our software system. I'm going to go do it and then just put it out there, ship it. I have a lot of autonomy right now and that feels very, very good. You know, Saturday I woke up, I kind of after realizing I have the same boring options, I could read, I could watch some TV, I could play some guitar. I sort of found myself gravitating towards, you know, my little office where I have my work computer. I went in there and opened up my work computer, started looking at things, started doing a couple of things. I was like, I feel like there's a social life there. It's in my work computer and it, it's tied to work, a sense of meaning and purpose and a way to pass time that feels, feels good. I don't get that on the weekends. I think that's why a couple of weekends ago I ended up just working the entire weekend on stuff that I wanted to work on because it's, it is something, you know, right now my life is on hold. There's not a whole lot else I can do. I, I can invest in, you know, uh, my future. There are things I can learn, which I have been, but I mean, only so much at some point you have to say, well, I'm, I'm going to experientially invest in myself. And all of that's on hold right now for all of us. And it's kind of a bummer, but I can work. Anyway, I pulled myself away from work, said, okay, I don't want to do that. Just sort of sat around my place. And yeah, I ended up leaving because it was, it's, you know, cold. You can only exercise so many times. And now... What else is going on? There's a lot of talk about vaccines right now. There are vaccines that are showing a lot of promise. It is December 5th, I want to say. Cinco de Deco. And people are talking about how we may actually be out of this whole pandemic thing by the middle of next year, once we get everybody vaccinated. All the talk about the vaccines, I'm trying to distance myself from that mentally. I'm trying not to put myself in that place. And the analogy I would use for that is to say that, you know, if you've, if you've ever been like on the road, if you've been driving home and you really have to go to the bathroom and it's, it's manageable, it's okay. It's not like an overwhelming urge, but then you get home and you're just, 
you're not even out of your, your car yet. You're not even like parked, but you're a spitting distance away from like where it is you do park. And then you know, it's a short jaunt to your front door and into your place, into the bathroom. Now your brain, for some reason, as soon as it senses that you're close to home, not in the bathroom, it's suddenly the, the urge just becomes much more overwhelming and starts driving you crazy. You know what I mean? I feel like this is this is what we're setting ourselves up for with the vaccines. The fact that we're thinking about this so far in advance, so far before there's the vaccines have been mass produced, a distribution plan has been put in place. Before we know, uh, yeah, I'm trying to like not give myself that hope. And it's, it's everybody's saying, of course, they're hedging their bets and saying, of course, if everything goes well, maybe second half of next year we're out of this and this is no longer a thing, but who knows? I don't, I don't have a whole lot of faith in everything going perfectly smoothly and perfectly well, but we will see. I, of course, I, of course, hope that I hope the vaccines get out there. I'm, I'm happy that there are vaccines just for healthcare workers alone and for any other public servants that have to be out there doing their job because we really depend on them. You know, I, I, I do feel for servers, you know, there are a lot of people who are not working right now because the world just basically can't run at the same time that we are. The world running the way it normally does, the normal economy, the normal things that happen are incompatible with what we need to do in order to combat the virus. And that is affecting a lot of people. Yes. But I'm less worried about service workers and more worried about people who are in healthcare, police officers, uh, EMTs, people who have to be out there putting their lives on the line because we just need them. They're, they're, they're there to lubricate society's proper functioning. And healthcare workers are, this isn't even society's proper functioning. It is bad out there. You look at the numbers. It is crazy how, how many cases there are right now in hospitals have got to be desperate places. I have not even driven by a hospital that I, that I know of, uh, since, since I want to say March. Yeah, I used to, there was a meeting I used to go to once a week in San Francisco. It was at a hospital in Knob Hill. And yeah, I, it was very, very strange. I remember like the weekend before shelter in place officially started in San Francisco, we were all talking, sitting around and saying, you know, this is probably the last time we are going to meet. This is, it may be a year or two before we're able to be back here doing this thing again, if ever, you know possible this the hospital just doesn't want us back for some reason like we lose our spot um but at the very least they're going to want us out of here they're not going to want us coming in while the pandemic is going on while this coronavirus thing is happening and i would say there was maybe half the people in the group so maybe 10 or 15 people kind of balked at that openly they were like no 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 it can't be that bad like we'll we'll get it under control and it won't be and a part of me wanted to believe that. I wanted to believe that it was just crazy. I wanted to believe that we would be meeting up again a month later and saying, you know, that wasn't as bad as everybody thought it was going to be. Thank God. And yet here we are close to, what is it, nine, nine months later. Whew. Yeah, it has been a long time. It has been a long time. But yes, the vaccine. I, I, I'm hopeful that the vaccine 
will help people currently working in healthcare fighting the pandemic and, and trying to keep people alive. People in that position, give them the, the vaccine as quickly as possible. As soon as you know it's safe and effective, uh, give it to all of them. I can wait. I'm patient. I don't need reality to return. I would like people to be able to help others not die and not have to worry about their own their own health. Yeah, so that's 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 me opening this up, uh, saying something that I guess I guess is meant to make me sound like a good guy, like a selfless guy. Look how good I am. But no, no, I, I mean it. I'm, I'm really. If 2020 has taught me anything, it's it's not to be too optimistic. It's not to believe that everything is going to go perfectly smoothly. You can't count on that. So, yeah, that is, that is me. That is what's going on on my end. What else is going on? There's an old expression that I once heard. It said that like the human brain, as soon as you were born, the human brain just starts going a mile a minute and doesn't stop until you die or you have to get up and speak in public. That is, of course, roughly what this is like. As soon as I put this thing on and say I'm going to record a podcast, all of the thoughts that were plowing through my head sort of suddenly dry up. I actually recorded a podcast I think I got about 40 minutes into it, but most of it was about the fallout of the election that we're seeing right now. I got to say, I am following that story pretty intently. I've been opening up news apps, reading every story I can about it. I find it fascinating for no other reason than this is, I think, unprecedented. The way uh, Trump is kind of, you know, bullheadedly fighting his loss of the election is fascinating to me. I don't think there's ever been a president that's done this. Like I, I keep saying that, like I kept saying throughout his presidency, I really don't care about Trump. I care about maybe some of the issues that Trump is involved with. I care about some issues uh, in politics that Trump is not involved with. I care very little about Trump. I think that was one of his uh, magician's tricks, a sleight of hand, is that he could take an issue that was controversial and make it make the controversy about him. Can you believe the president said this? And all the focus was taking off of the controversy around the issue itself. The question of immigration, the question of how we treat Muslims. This all became, can you believe Donald Trump is doing this instead of about the issue itself? But I focused on the issues, and as far as Trump goes, I was pretty much ambivalent because most of what was going on in his administration during his tenure, I kind of felt had happened before in some form. Maybe not quite as extreme in some cases, but it didn't seem altogether unprecedented. All of this election fallout seems entirely unprecedented. And for that reason, I'm following it. I'm very fascinated by it. I do kind of wonder what the legacy of all this is going to be. And I mean, I mean, years from now. I mean, once the passions die down, nobody. These days, nobody cares about Ike versus whoever. Nobody has passionate political opinions about how the world may or may not end if Dewey doesn't defeat Truman. But at some point, that was the case. That was the reality. And these things have just become a matter of historical perspective um, from our modern take on things. What exactly are people going to look back and see here? I imagine that most of Trump's presidency will probably be overshadowed by coronavirus. 
that might be the legacy it leaves behind. 2020, it won't be thought of as the last year of Trump's presidency. We won't really remember the stuff that he did. It'll just be like, yeah, I mean, there was that pandemic. Everybody had to shelter in place for. But I don't think most of his shenanigans are going to be remembered. I think they're all going to fall by the wayside. And But this one I wonder about. If there's anything that I think might stand the test of time, we say, can you believe that that happened? It would be a president who loses an election uh, as an incumbent and uses all of the resources at his disposal to fight the outcome. I was reading an article, I think it was in the Washington Post, in the spirit of full disclosure, which was talking about this election didn't go well, but the thing is Trump is a boob. And so he's, you know, not making a very good case. He's not very competent. He's not very convincing, especially not regarding, especially not in, the, in in presenting evidence to courts of law. He has not been effective in waging that particular battle. But somebody who is better liked and somebody who is has more finesse and may actually be able to uh, fight an election outcome in the future. That is not impossible given how weak our electoral process is. He says that the the article was written by a law professor, somebody who specialized in electoral law, whatever body of law that is, that was his specialty. And he was saying, what we're seeing right now is definitely exposing some flaws in our current system that, you know, leaks in the boat that really ought to be plugged up before we have another election. We got four years before we uh, hold another one. We should, we should really learn some lessons from this and, plug up the holes in the boat. And I think that's very, very good advice. Of course, it's one of those things I think, yeah, that's great. We should definitely do that. But I don't exactly know what I as an individual ought to do. You know, there there are so many things. This this is why I, I tend to like, I tend to be very, very careful about how I engage in politics and political thinking because there's a very, there's a limit to what it is I can do. I need to be informed. I need to understand the basic mechanisms and how things work just so I can be a competent citizen. But most of the issues that people care about, I don't have the energy to get to the bottom of the truth, like which side is right. And even if I did know the truth, what exactly would I do with it? You know, not everything you learn in politics is actionable. In fact, very, very little of it is actionable. And I think the smartest thing that a citizen can do is really figure out what change you can affect at what level, what you can be effective doing, what you're even capable of doing, and do that if you're inclined. And all the more power to you if that whatever it is you choose to do, the mechanism has nothing to do with social media. It's not just starting a Facebook page and trying to get as many people to like it as possible. Whatever you can do that is concrete offline action that actually has an impact on things, that is great. I remember social media so differently. I remember 2009, 2010. I really, I got into reading uh, Seth Godin, who's an online, he's a marketer. Uh, he coined the term permission marketing as a concept. Uh, was an entrepreneur, had an exit, which I think was very, very lucrative for him in the late nineties. He ended up becoming a writer and influencer on the internet as far as how to how to spread ideas, how to, how to how to market things. Interesting guy, but I kind of got interested in him. I, at a time when my sort of mind had stagnated, I lost the ability to really think dynamically or think creatively. 
he kind of gave me a shot in the arm and made me think, yeah, you know, things are possible that I was too cynical to believe were possible before. And it really opened my eyes to a lot of things. But a lot of it was focused on marketing. And a lot of marketing at the time was newly about the Internet. Like, how exactly do you do ad campaigns? You know, how do you how do you reach an audience? How do you build an audience? How do you how do you craft a message that will reach them? And I remember being excited by the prospects of all these things. You know, this is still, I think this is still early enough. You know, the, the social network, the film that portrayed Mark Zuckerberg in a not so positive light, but, you know, didn't have anything to say about Facebook itself. It came out around that time. You know, people still liked the social networks. There was no discussion about you know, their their political bias one way or the other. There was no discussion about are these actually ruining us psychologically? You know, there wasn't this fatigue and people weren't leaving them in droves because they just had enough and they were sick of the concept. It always still felt new enough uh, that there was potential, you know, the potential in the Internet. The Internet is not going to be something that just becomes this Pandora's box that divides us all and makes us all argue and hate each other. It still felt like maybe this thing that could bring about some sort of utopian, okay, we all are in connection with each other, we all understand each other, we all respect each other's differences. At some point, that was the vision for the internet, and I don't know why a lot of us bought into it. I bought into it because I was young and naive. I didn't know. I think people who were older, I would guess, I'd guess my father and uh, probably some other men who were about his age, I think they were rightly cynical about the internet in the early days. They were kind of like, yeah, we've seen this sort of thing before. It's it's a new technology that is not going to change human nature or amplify the good parts of human nature as much as just amplify human nature, which is mostly crap to begin with. So no reason to be optimistic about where this is headed long term is the general sense I kind of got from them. And I was... I don't even I, I don't I don't even know if that's the cynical perspective or if me not wanting to believe that perspective was cynical in and of itself. I don't know if cynicism is always negative, but in, in, in any case, I thought the Internet was going to be a, a boon. I thought it was going to solve problems. You know, there was some point where I kind of felt like there's something you can do to fix some major problem in the world or a major set of problems in the world. That was always, I think, my aspiration, you know, I wanted to become a musician and write music and release it and become famous because I wanted to change the world with my music or I want to start something online and get traction with an audience because then somehow, if you're successful in that way, you can make things better. All of my aspirations have always been very hand wavy. Like somehow I'm successful at something and this gives me some kind of influence that allows me to affect positive change. Somehow. This is perhaps why I was so optimistic about the internet in the early days because I just, realism is just too crushing. It crushes your dreams. It crushes what you really want. So this was, all this to say, yes, at some point, at some point, the idea that maybe Facebook pages would be a revolution in politics and they would, the Internet would do something to affect change. I think the biggest impact that the Internet has had on, let's say, global politics would be something like the Arab Spring. Now, that really couldn't have happened the way it happened without the ability to organize online. 
there's been a lot of political efforts that have been organized around using the tools of Yeah, I actually have a friend in San Francisco who's working on a software platform that is intended to be used by activists. Uh, I don't think it's quite, you know, anonymized software that allows Antifa to organize and then go out and, you know, stab conservatives. But it's it. I feel like it borders on that. At some point, he was kind of asking for my help developing it. And I, I kind of steered away from it because it felt a little bit too radical for my tastes. Uh, wasn't really quite what I was after uh, in terms of impact I would want to make on the world. Uh, but interesting idea, you know, um, how do you allow people in large numbers to get behind a cause and organize around it in a way that is, you know, anonymized? There are, of course, privacy concerns around being an activist. I think he's looking to solve that problem, which is a problem that definitely has merit. Um, yeah, probably just have ideological differences. I find it very, very interesting that anarchism is something that is associated with the far left. Like for some reason, progressivism, you know, if you, if you go down the democratic side of things, the left liberal leaning side of things, you know, you get more and more socialism. It's more and more government control over things, uh, with the extreme being, you know, something like communism. And then for some reason, further left of that is anarchy. For some reason, anarchy doesn't strike me like an extreme form of leftism so much as it strikes me as an extreme form of libertarianism. If you just keep going to the right and say less and less government, you get to anarchy. Does it just fall on both sides? Is it like the place where you can kind of, you go so far left that you end up coming back on the right? Does it just loop around? Anyway, I've never really understood that, but I guess it's the way of, of the left, the political left sort of being in balance with itself. There's a lot of people saying we need more government, but there is a faction of it that says we need no government whatsoever. Anarchy is one of those things that I don't understand at all as a political philosophy, which is not to say that I, I don't, I think it's dumb. Like when people say I don't get something, very often that means I don't see the merit in it. I don't understand how anybody can think that's a good idea. When I say I don't get anarchy, I mean I don't understand what it means. I don't actually understand what an anarchist would say. Like when anarchists get together and talk about political philosophies, what are they saying to each other? What are they discussing? What are they arguing about, you know, in their little realm? I have no idea. I've heard libertarians argue with each other, and I've heard libertarians argue with non-libertarians. And yeah, I've, I've... born witness to those discussions both online and in person, and I, I kind of have some sense, I kind of have a grasp of the rationale behind it. Anarchy, not so much. I don't get it. I had half a mind to do that. I was in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, which is the old hippie neighborhood where the Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin flourished back in the 1960s, a summer of love, 67. Uh, Haight-Ashbury is a little hippie neighborhood that's still Very not corporate, but I was there walking around in February, March, just before Shelter in Place hit. And there was a little bookstore that I went into. It was, I think, the anarchist bookstore. It was, there was nothing corporate in, uh, Haight Ashbury, I think, except for there was a Whole Foods. 
at the end of Haight Street. It was very, very hidden and tucked away. I didn't see it. It was also a goodwill. Outside of that, it was all independent shops. But there was a little bookstore. It was like the anarchist bookstore. And they had a bunch of anarchist material and a bunch of left-leaning stuff. It's the kind of place you would not go in there looking for, I was going to say Bill O'Reilly or uh, Tucker Carlson. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go in there looking for anything even centrist, anything moderate. I don't think you would find in there. Bill Maher would probably not be in there. He'd be too conservative. He'd be, he'd be too establishment for this bookstore. But I don't, I don't even actually know. I don't know who the anarchist is. There are some political philosophies that have a patron. They have one person. You say, well, he's the person you go to if you want to know about that philosophy. You want to know about libertarianism, this guy is your man. I can't think of who the libertarian person is, but there are definitely people that come up if you want to know about that. Anarchy, I don't know. I don't know who the the quintessential anarchist philosopher is. Maybe that's really not possible at all. It's kind of like Naomi Klein's book, No Logo, which talked about basically the anti-branding book. The publisher was asking her when she was writing it, you know, I think the book needs a logo. She was like, well, the book itself is called No Logo. And it's like, it's about not branding. It's about the anti-branding message. And the publisher saying, well, how do we brand it? And she's saying, well, you can't. That's the point. I guess you really can't have somebody who's a spearhead of an anarchist movement because you don't have movements or groupings or organizations in anarchy. I guess that's why it's never really gotten off the ground. It really picked up steam. I guess that would make sense. I don't know. So one thing I watched uh, again lately was uh, this limited series on Netflix called Maniac. There are 10 episodes, about an hour long a piece, so about 10 hours in total. Came out a couple of years ago. And it's a very, I liked it a lot. It was something I enjoyed quite a bit. And so I returned to it and watched it again a couple months ago. I can't remember if I've talked about this. It's hard to know where to start with this. I, I will say it is in part about dreams. For those of you who've been following me, I am doing, making some effort to understand what it is my dreams might be trying to tell me. I sort of have a Jungian perspective on it. I believe that dreams try to balance you out. They send you kind of symbolic messages. I don't think it's ever as simple as, you know, you have a dream about an elephant, and so you look up elephants in a dream book, and elephants mean this, and therefore that's what the dream means. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. But I think the brain doesn't just arbitrarily produce random nonsense. I think I think there's an evolutionary case to be made here which says that dreams must mean something because dreams cost the brain energy. They cost it a lot of energy while we are sleeping. And sleep itself, you know, poses a big risk to the organism. You have to, like, let your defenses down for a third of your day. And so, I mean, the brain would not waste energy developing these dreams for us unless they had some sort of purpose. I think the purpose might very well be psychological. I don't think I understand what my dreams mean, but I am making more of an effort to pay attention to what's in them. And sometimes different 
possible interpretations of meaning slip through. It's a fun game to play while we're all locked inside and we can't go out and explore the world. I'm exploring the inner world. But when I saw it two years ago, I had no idea about dream analysis. If you asked me, like, analyzing your dreams, I would have said, that's just ancient Freudian nonsense. You know, we we left that behind ages ago. That's like a phrenology or using leeches. Nobody analyzes their dreams. But people do analyze their dreams. I think there's something to it. And, uh, you know, it's funny because people always say, well, dreams aren't there the aren't that isn't that something that you know old superstitious doctors just did when they didn't know any better you know psychiatrists and psychologists analyzed dreams because they didn't know what we know they were just ignorant and well the thing is they were not received as being authoritative like if you go back and read the writings of freud and jung what they were saying about dreams they were trying to make the case for dream interpretation being meaningful to a large group of, to, to a large world that thought there was nothing to them. They thought they were arbitrary and silly. It sounds very much like the perspective you hear now. It sounds like they were arguing against the same mass sentiment against dream analysis that we have now. It's kind of like there's an old, it's a 2,000-year-old treatise on astrology, one of the oldest ones that we have in the Western world, uh, written by Ptolemy in Alexandria in the second century, which is called Tetra Biblios. At the beginning of that, he makes a case that astrology is not nonsense, like most people claim that it is. He's arguing for astrology against the masses of people who believe that it's just nonsense. He says, they're just not working hard enough to understand it. That's why they don't get it. Sounds very much like the sentiment now. You talk to an astrologer, they say, you know, there's something to it, but most people don't get it because they're not trying hard enough. It doesn't sound like the world 2,000 years ago related to astrology or the world 100 years ago related to psychology and dream analysis was really all that different from today, looking at the historical stuff. Anyway, all this to say, I do try and pay attention to my dreams. I do think there might be something to them. I do think they do try to to heal us, even in micro ways. You know, maybe there's little things that happened in the day that might traumatize us or scar us in some way. I think uh, I think dreams try and soothe those wounds in their own way. I think there is a purpose there. Anyway, the, the movie itself, not the movie, TV show, Maniac, on Netflix, is actually about a drug trial. Stylistically, it's a very, very interesting show because... It's props, a lot of its visuals, things that are present, like computer equipment that is used on screen, looks like it's from the 1970s. And yet, you can tell by the way people are talking and what the technology is doing that it's meant to take place in the far future. Things are much more advanced than they are now. So you have this weird retro quality which keeps it from being i guess too much of a of a sort of embellishment on what the future might look like it's a weird hybrid and i think it was a, i think i think it's a good choice i think it's an effective choice it kind of it kind of puts what the world 
is going to be like its portrayal of the future. It sort of puts that into the background. So people are not analyzing it. Like one of my mother's favorite writer, Katsuo Ishiguro, he wrote Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go, a few other things. There was one, I think it was Never Let Me Go, which was actually made into a movie. He set that in the 1990s because the plot of it was somewhat dystopian. And even though what he wrote wasn't taking place in the 1990s, as far as we know, he didn't want people to interpret it as this is where society is headed. He didn't want it. He didn't want people to take it as sort of a premonition, prognostication. Like this is, this is the trajectory we're on people. So he didn't set it in the future. He set it in the past so that people would not read too much into it as being predictive. I think the making the dressings somewhat retrograde in this television show, which takes place clearly in the future, has the same effect. You pay more attention to what's going on and not where people are. Like, is the setting, does the setting really correct? You don't scrutinize it at all. But it's about a drug trial. And it stars, I going to say the super bad couple. I mean, it's Jonah Hill and Emma, Emma Stone? Emma Watson? Emma Watson or Emma Stone? Why can't I remember which one it is? Anyway, the same, the, the same couple that was in Superbad, like Jonah Hill was interested in the girl. That same actress is, uh, stars alongside him in this. They both go in for a drug trial. Uh, he's very depressed. She's just, she manages to worm her way into the drug trial because she's addicted to one of the drugs and wants to get access to it. Uh, but what the therapy is, is it's, you take drugs and you go into this computer simulation and it figures out what is wrong with you. It understands your core traumas. And then it generates dream imagery that is meant to heal you of your traumas. Now, when I watched it two years ago, like I said, I had no understanding of dream interpretation or understanding the way dreams were. And so many of the episodes, especially the later ones, maybe half of them, are them, the characters going into these simulations and experiencing these dream realities, which are kind of weird. You know, things seem like they could be happening, but they're not in line with reality. And some things feel weird, like the laws of physics don't quite work well, or there isn't continuity in some ways. I didn't really understand what I was watching at the time. Um, now I, I watched it now and I was like, oh, these are like supposed to be dreams. I appreciated it much more. And the twist on this is that because of a technical glitch, there are 10, sorry, how many people are there? There are, I want to say five, six people who are involved in the drug trial. Due to a technical glitch, two of them, Jonah Hill and Emma, whichever Emma it is, uh, they end up sharing the same dream reality. Basically, they're, they're both, their dream realities are fused together and they, they experience them together. They both bring ideas to the table. So both of, their, both of the things, the dream imagery that would heal their traumas is fused together into a singular experience that they have. And they remember it. They wake up after each session and say, yeah, you and I were in each other's dreams together. We don't know why. Again, it's because of a hardware issue with the computer whose simulation they're in. 
But that's the interesting rub about it, uh, how these two characters sort of interact. And it's a story about them, ultimately. I think it's interesting because somebody else pointed this out. I didn't actually notice this the first or the second time I watched it, but the show itself doesn't actually have a villain. There's a whole lot of characters involved in this central premise, and they're all struggling with their own personal demons that they have to work through. And that's, that is the villain of the story is just everyone's personal demons that they have to work through, which is unusual. The fact that it's just, it's conflict without a real source or the source itself is strictly psychological, which is, uh, I think that's more common in single character studies, like a movie about a lone individual. Okay, like that was probably the conflict in Sybil, for example. If you have a movie about somebody with disassociative identity disorder, yes, your villain is psychology. But it's weird to have a a show that stars multiple people, kind of like Lost, where the conflict is, driving conflict is basically psychological conflict internally. Anyway, very interesting. Well worth checking out if you're looking for something to binge watch. Go see how you like it. Uh, let's see what else is going on. I have actually been queuing up movies for myself to watch. Like I've been going on to the various streaming services and browsing movies and adding them to my queue or list or whatever the hell you, whatever you get on each of the platforms. I'm, I'm making a stack of stuff to watch, but I'm actually watching none of it. Like I'm watching very little television. It's I kind of like the idea that someday, someday I will watch television. I don't know what it is. I have an aversion to wanting to watch television. It's kind of like for a while here, period of a month or two, I was reading like crazy. You know, surrounded by books, I was always picking one up and just pouring through it quickly and heavily. Now it's like I pick up a book and I cannot focus on it. It's the same with television. I kind of watch for 10 minutes and I sort of think, I, I this feels like a waste of time to me. I feel like there's something I, else I should be doing. And it might be, it might be that, you know, I'm just... I'm out of whack here. I'm out of balance. The fact that I've been cooped up and not doing anything. I haven't been getting out and seeing people or doing what normal people do. Just been home. Some Something is making me resistant to just doing these solitary things. And it's saying, you know, you have to. It's trying to impel me towards other modes of diversion. Part of it is the paradox of choice, too. Um I did have a friend uh, who tweeted something a few months ago saying, you know, I'm having a lot of trouble coming up with a book that I want to read. I have like so many choices, like two, two dozen things I could pick up and read, and I don't know which one to choose. And I've been sitting here staring out the window for 45 minutes, not reading, trying to figure out which one I want to read. There's definitely elements of that. I've had that happen before where I sit there and say, there are so many things that I want to read, but I'm not quite sure which one it is. So I'm just going to sit here and think about it. And maybe if I think about it long enough, eventually the answer will strike me. The inspiration will hit. 
And I don't end up reading anything. I just sit there for an hour daydreaming about this and that, speculating about what I could read. And then I say, you know, what? I'm just going to go do something else. You know, the, the interest in reading has sort of fallen by the wayside. And I don't know if that's actually more productive. Like maybe the daydreaming was necessary and that's better than me having just picked up one of the books and read. Maybe that's the message my brain is trying to send me. Can't be sure. Anyway, uh, let's see here. I'm getting a text from family. They're ordering dinner. I'm supposed to go pick it up here as soon. Let me, uh, I'll be right back. So I helped my, uh, my mother set up a printer today. She got a new printer scanner and yeah, I didn't, didn't quite understand how to, how to set it up. Um, you know, I, I wonder about this because she she always talks about I can't do this because I'm so old. You know, she tells me, like, make sure you don't get old. Like, it sucks because you just stop understanding the world. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if this is really the source of her difficulties, because as long as I can remember, that is the card she has played. You know, it's always been kind of like, I can't understand this. I just don't have the brain for it. It used to be she didn't have the brain for it. Now she's she's too old for it. And the world has somehow passed her by. There's always like an excuse. I feel like this is this is what she did for many many years. She kind of didn't have to worry about a lot of technical things because she had my father to deal with them. He doesn't really he can't really deal with those things anymore. So I mean now I'm here and if something technical comes up, she has me do it. And of course my deal is I'm happy to sit here and help you, but it's got to be more like I'm teaching you how to fish instead of just like giving you the fish itself. You know, like I'm I'm hoping. What I do here makes you self-sufficient in the future. So it's an investment in you not having to come back to me for help later. Not because it bothers me to help you, but just because I want you to be self-reliant. Uh, that would, that would make me feel slightly better about doing all this. But yeah, I think she's kind of okay with that. She'll at least go along with it. She's kind of picked up on the fact that I, you know, I, I think she could just hand me something to do, but I don't, I don't think she wants to do that either. She doesn't just want to say, do this thing for me. So it struck a balance somewhere in the middle. I think she would like me to do more than uh, I would really like to do. And I think it would be nice if she made more of an effort to learn for herself how these things work instead of just making excuses for it. You know, like, oh, I can't, I can't do it because I'm so old. And I do wonder how much people struggle with technology. Like I was, the printer itself, I mean, connects to wireless. It's, it's a wireless printer, so you can print without cords. So in essence, you have to hook it up to your wireless network. Now, in order to do that without getting too technical, you have to make your computer connect to the printer as though it is the access point itself. And then you have to teach the access point while you're connected in the printer how to connect to the router on the Internet. That probably made no sense, but essentially the concept is very, very subtle. And technically it's, if you didn't understand technology as well as I do, I do computers for a living, at least the software part of it. I understand hardware enough that what I'm saying makes sense to me. I understand kind of how it works. But your average person, do they get these concepts? Do they understand? I don't know. I don't know. I, I wonder if it's... I, I do wonder if there's an age factor to it. 
I don't actually know. I don't want to sit here and like disparage, uh, you know, one of my parents, but you know, it seems like there's kind of a helplessness sort of thing. I feel like it's kind of overblown. And so I don't quite buy it where like a dialogue comes up and it says, here, click on this thing to rename this device. And she's like, well, I don't know what that means. I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do. Why don't you do this for me? I'm like, why don't you move the mouse over and click on what it says? Like, just follow the instructions on the thing. You don't have to know what it's doing. Just, just do it. You know? And so I, I, I like, I, are you just messing with me? You know, are you just, I give up, do it for me. You know, I'm okay with that actually, as long as somebody asks, as long as somebody says, you know, I, I don't, I can't do this or I don't want to do it. Please help me. As long as somebody asks for help. I just don't like the games where somebody sits there and acts helpless and they're kind of looking at you like, all right, you should jump in and help me now because I'm making a big show of struggling. That I that always bothers me. That, that definitely gets my goat. One of my sore points. Anyway, I'll have to start driving here. Uh, dinner is coming from a restaurant that's about a mile from where I'm at now, so I'm going to head over and hang out in that parking lot until it is ready. Uh, let's see, where was I? Yes, printer. Printer slash scanner. I'm over by uh, Oakland University right now. I had a very, very weird experience when I first arrived here. I was walking. I was just walking around. Like, I've, I've walked as much as I could when I first got here. And I was walking around OU's campus. And that whole experience, like, being down here brought back some memories. Like, OU for me is tied to my senior year of college. And I remember, like, some aspirations, some feelings, some thoughts that I had when I was back then. And when I came back and just started walking around campus here, I sort of had the same vision. I had the same thought. Like, suddenly I was not in 2020. I was back in 2003. My brain was there. It was like I had gone back in time. And, yeah, I remember the anticipations that I had. I remember the things that I looked forward to things that I wanted to materialize in the future. And a lot of those things have come to pass. A lot of those, I got a lot of what I wanted. And it's weird because I felt like it was ahead of me. Uh, but it wasn't. So it felt like I was remembering the future. I don't quite know how to explain it. It was very, very strange. Same experience when I was in Royal Oak at some point. Uh, Royal Oak is a little city that I lived in for about four years after I graduated from college, just before I moved to California. And being back there at some point, going back and visiting after I had moved to California and been out there for several years, I was back in Royal Oak remembering aspirations of eventually moving to California. Living a mile from the beach or from the mountains and uh, just living the California lifestyle out there with the palm trees and all that. I remember thinking, like, I want to get to that. I want to get to that in the future. That's something I'm going to try and build towards. And I went back to the past, and I remembered uh, this time historically when that was something that was uh, on the distant horizon in the future. You know, like, someday I'll get there, but I don't know when. 
suddenly I was back there, but I'd already done it. So it felt like I was having these memories of the future. Very strange experience. I wonder if that's my brain like softening in, you know, as I approach 40 years of age. I don't know. Weird situation to be in, though. Very, very strange psychologically. Okay, let's see. Where Where am I? We're getting Olga's. Olga specializes in some form of gyro, gyro. I don't know how the Greeks pronounce that goddamn thing, but it's it's, it's a form of bread, meat, and cheese is, in essence, what their specialty is. And how can that be wrong? Kind of like if that if that is wrong, then I don't want to be right. That old adage. Yeah, okay, so what else is... What else has been going on? I've been avoiding watching TV and avoiding reading. But I haven't been avoiding browsing either thing. I actually haven't been playing the guitar. I I got the guitar. I acquired a guitar about a month ago, and I played it like crazy for a few days. And I realized you didn't ease yourself back into this. You're, you're kind of... You, you don't want to risk injury, or you got to slow your roll a bit. So I, I stopped playing for a week just to sort of let my hand recover and that one week turned into four and now it's I, I still have the guitar but I feel like it's one of those things I just bought it and played it for a few days and and now I'm over it it's like I just you know something I bought on a lark feels like an impulse buy I'm actually following through on it I probably should pick it up I don't know. I'm thinking about this now. It feels like there are things that I don't want to do because I feel like they're the wrong things to do. I'm trying to figure out what, by what criteria my brain is trying to make that judgment. Or by what criteria my brain is making that judgment. Why would anything be incorrect right now? If I decide to go home, it's Saturday. It's the weekend. I don't have to work. I've got this time. Why don't I just go home and watch some movie that I'm really interested in? Why does that feel like a waste of time to me? In fact, that's a perfectly good use of time if it's something that I would enjoy. I don't know. I've become much more discerning. That's the word. About a lot of things. The whole idea of... Well, the whole idea of dating, of of someday getting back into a romantic relationship with somebody. I, I've actually gotten to a point where that, that's been so far removed from even being a possibility in reality that it doesn't even, it doesn't even register anymore. I don't even think about it. I don't even, I'm not, there's no part of me that's preoccupied with, what if I don't meet somebody good enough or soon enough or 
whatever it is, whatever you know, the normal anxieties people have about not wanting to be single, I feel fine. And really, it has become a matter of discernment. It has become a matter of, I feel like when I finally get out there and I can actually approach the idea safely, post-coronavirus, post-COVID pandemic world, there's a part of me that's just going to be saying, what exactly are you bringing to my life? In what way are you adding to things? In what way are you not just wasting my time? with whatever bullshit human beings bring to, you know, human relationships. And more importantly, what exactly would I be bringing to somebody else's life? Like, what exactly can I offer that somebody would, should want to be with me? You know, growing up with the idea of normal gender roles and believing that that's kind of where I was headed kind of a normal life, there was an answer to that question that was very, very easy. And it's, I'm not saying because it's the easy answer, it's the right answer, or that's the right answer because of some conservative bullshit. But I'm just saying, when I was younger, I kind of felt like the man's the breadwinner, the wife tends to the home, raises the kids. I think that makes sense to me. That seems like an even trade, a fair division of labor. And okay, let's go with that. I don't see myself having kids. I tend to my own home. As a matter of fact, the aspects of the home that are mine, that I take pride in, I would want to tend to myself, and I would hope that that's not just some man cave. I don't think I could put up with a a woman being married to a woman who says, you know what, you get one room in the house, I get the rest of it, and you can't do diddly dick to decorate it. This is all me. You know, this is all my space. Your space is tucked away in the garage. Fuck that. Ain't no way that's happening. Uh, you know, I'm not saying I got to assert myself. Like, all my tastes have to be out in the open. I'm sure some of my tastes will not overlap with... If I ever end up getting married, whoever I'm married to, I'm sure we'll have disputes about it. What looks good on the mantle... I don't want that bouquet of flowers in the middle of the kitchen table. You know, whatever it is, whatever disagreement we have, we won't see eye to eye on things. But I don't, uh, I don't want it to be everything you like sucks and it's terrible. And so it gets relegated to just some hole in the back of the house. Like there's parts of the home that I want to tend to. And really, I would think just to. In my experience, just so whoever I'm with has their own sense of purpose, I would want the person I'm with to be doing something active. A job is probably the easiest answer to that question. Uh, If not that, then something, I guess it could be something artistic, which wouldn't necessarily bring in any money. But anyway, the point is that the division of labor is not clear to me anymore like it seems like i'm perfectly happy doing both roles i wouldn't want to secede one of those roles entirely to a romantic partner and i wouldn't want them to do the same either 
like how I, I think it's just, it's just two people who are capable of being self-reliant who happen to want to live together. Isn't that the whole idea of a healthy relationship? There's no codependency whatsoever. You're not reliant on the other person for anything. I know that's not quite what it means, but, you know, bear with me here, talking it through. Then I would think, I don't know. I don't know exactly what it is somebody could offer me that would make my life better. And I don't know what I could offer to them that would make their life better. It's maybe not one of those things that you can know in advance. Matter of fact, that's probably the mistake. I think if you go into it formulaically, like I'm going to be the breadwinner and this other person is going to be the person who tends the home and provides for the kids. I mean, if you think formulaically, that's just what, that's the way it has to be because that's the way it's always been, that sort of traditionalism. Then you're probably just being lazy. You're probably just saying, well, I'm going to do that because that's what you're supposed to do and I'm not going to think about what it is I really want. I'm not going to scrutinize this at all. So it's probably good that I'm not just falling back on what most people call their laurels. And I'm actually thinking, okay, well, what, what, what is it I would want? And what is it I could offer? I'm not even really sure this is an interesting question to be asking, but it is a question. I think there is a, there is a question to be asked about most things. Whether or not it's a question worth exploring, that's another thing entirely. Right. You know, how much time you allocate towards exploring something is another matter as well. But I think there is, there is a question. Yeah, and no, I wonder, I talked a little bit about this. I recorded a podcast about the election, which went on for about 40 minutes. And I think that was more of just saying, I need to get this out of my system. I don't want to podcast about this. So I'm just going to turn this thing on, see how it goes. And in the end, after 40 minutes, I kind of looked at it and said, well, that was fun. I kind of touched upon some interesting points, but there's no way that anybody would be interested in hearing any of that. That didn't offer anything. It wasn't entertaining. Not that I'm entertaining in general, but it didn't really open any doors that I think people would find interesting. But I did touch upon conspiracy theories a little bit, and there is, of course, a lot of conspiracy theories going around. It's very, very strange to me that there are now, there are now two factions in the country. One of them believes that uh, there was a presidential election that was massively fraudulent, and the person who was declared the winner officially is not, was corrupt in some way and stole the thing. And the other half of people just believe that anyone who believes that is off their rocker. And th these are two very, very irreconcilable positions. And I think that if we don't figure out how to sort of approach each other, like have the sides sort of come together, I think we might become an ungovernable mess of a country. And there's always a threat of that. I don't know if it's more pronounced now than it ever has been, but... There's definitely something, there's a kind of weird, irrational superstition to all of this that makes me wonder. But about conspiracy theories in general, the whole idea of there was massive voter fraud in this election. And I would not first, I, would, I don't want to open this up by saying that 
I don't think that's possible. I don't like the false dichotomy of you have to fall into one or either camp. And that's the point I want to make about a conspiracy theory. So they tend to binarize around two different opinions or points of view, like perspectives that the actual truth could lie somewhere in between those two. Let me see. I think the food's going to be ready pretty soon. So let me, let me figure out what it is I actually want to say. I mean, you kind of have this, this idea that Either the, there was no election fraud whatsoever because Trump claimed that there was and Trump is wrong, so therefore there was no fraud. Or you believe that there was such massive fraud that it swayed the election outcome one way or the other. Now, the thing is, it's possible to believe that Trump is full of crap, but still to believe that there was some election fraud. And it's possible to believe that there was no election fraud. And, well, I guess you really can't believe that. What I'm saying is, like, there's some moderate, there's several moderate positions that lie in between the two extremes. And people reject those as being associated with the other side. They're too far away from one's own position and too close to the opposing position that you don't even consider them. I think that's the problem with conspiracy theories. Like, what if the government did have something to do with 9-11? Now, to be clear, I don't think the government had a single thing to do with it. I, I, I looked into it a little bit. Admittedly, it's been 14 years since I dug at all. But at some point I looked and I said, I don't see any. This is There's not a very compelling case to be made for, I think it was Al-Qaeda. I think there were there was just religious reasons. I think it was bin Laden. And that's, that's just the way it happened. You know, something, something akin to the official story. But let's imagine hypothetically, strictly hypothetically, me not claiming that any of this is true, but let's imagine that the government was complicit in some minor way. Like maybe they knew the attack was coming and somebody in Bush's administration at the time, you know, 2001 said, you know, it would be advantageous for us as a pretext to like start a war somewhere if we got attacked. So we know there's an attack coming. Let's look the other way. Maybe we could even go ahead and fund it. Imagine that had been the case. That possibility, I've never heard that surface. That's not, that's never discussed because the two extremes are you, you either believe in some crazy conspiracy bullshit, you know, that the government fired missiles at the World Trade Center, or you believe in the official account and you think that any sort of question about whether or not our government was, was involved is just crazy. Now, just as a free-thinking person, as a liberal in the classical sense of the word, I don't think it's stupid to ask the question, was the government involved? Was the United States involved? Now, that doesn't mean you automatically have to assume that all of the crazy nonsense you hear from the 9-11 truthers is accurate, but to, to close yourself off from the question, I don't know. And, I mean, I would say that there's an idea I kind of want to toy with more, but in brief, the way I state it is that if you're going to divide people into two camps on a large enough scale, any assertion you might make about the other. So if you divide people into us and them, and you make a character attack on the other side, on a large enough scale, any character attack you can make of the other side, you could equally make of yourself. So 
The thing is, if you open the possibility, if you smuggle in the idea that the election could be swayed, that there could be election fraud done, Basically, human nature is capable of that, and I believe that human nature is. And if you believe that Biden is capable of that, then you have to believe that Trump is capable of that. There's there's no universe that I can see living in where the Democrats are the corrupt, evil ones, and the Republicans would never consider doing such a thing because they have too much respect for democracy and there's really not enough at stake to risk it. As a matter of fact, if you're going to say both parties are capable of this, and if Biden's side was capable of election fraud to steal the election, then Trump's side is also capable of election fraud, just from a character perspective, from a human nature perspective. And if you're going to say which one is more likely, Trump is the one that has the resources of the president, the presidency at his disposal right now. So he is the one who is more likely to be able to pull it off. And wouldn't that be embarrassing? Can you imagine if evidence came to light that Trump actually committed election fraud and still lost, that would be so humiliating. But, yeah, in any case, I think the important thing to say is I don't quite know where this lands. I think the investigation is ongoing and it's perhaps too soon to conclude one way or the other. I remain open to the possibility that there was some election fraud. Now, I don't really think that's the case because uh, there's been no evidence of it. The evidence that's been presented has been flimsy. But it's not a stretch to me to assume that there was maybe some mistakes made or some small acts of fraud committed. But the thing is, if it was just rogue individuals who wanted to had personal agendas and wanted to influence the outcome of the election and it wasn't anything on a grand scale, then it probably would have been equally done for both sides. And the scale on which that could be done was so small that it wouldn't materially affect the outcome. And I think that's the whole point. To the extent that I see fraud as being even possible, as even something that should be looked at, it would happen on such a small scale that it wouldn't affect anything. It would happen both ways. So I think we'd end up with the same outcome, ultimately. We'd end up with the same person as president-elect. So I don't really see the merit in speculating about it all that much. But it is interesting. Not least of all because I think what's happening now is quite unprecedented. It's crazy that this is currently going on, that uh, there is a legal battle being waged by the president over the fact that he lost an election. Anyway, I wish there was actually more interesting things to say. I wish I could tell you all about how I went to this or that museum today or went and explored this or that mountain and hiked around it. And You know, I'm glad I'm not in California now, but I wish I was back in California under normal circumstances. That would be swell. You know, I've, I have a bad habit of chewing gum. It's something I do, kind of a nervous habit. Instead of grinding my teeth from stress, I just chew gum from stress. I've been chewing gum for a very, very long time. I've been chewing it all week during work. I just like, earlier today, I put a stick in my mouth and started chewing and I have like completely bitten up the inside of my mouth. Like just from like misfires. Like I just misdirected bites. I don't understand that. How can you get like worse 
at chewing gum overnight like that. Isn't that kind of like forgetting how to like ride a bicycle? You're not supposed to do it. Like, how can you forget? How can you suddenly become so bad at chewing gum that you're like gnawing up the inside of your mouth by accident? Yes, this is this is what I have to talk about. This is all that there is. I had a coworker once who he told me he was going through all of the Academy Award winning pictures, everything that won Best Picture from the inception. I guess the first thing that won Best Picture was what was it? It was that old airplane movie. It was like it actually had really, really good shots of planes in war. This was like 1928, I want to say. I forget what the name of it is. Anyway, he started with that one. And once a week, they would watch one new best picture film. Yeah, it was uh, him and his wife were doing it. And so they were working through all the best picture films one a week. I thought that was a really, really good idea. I, I have a feeling if I try to do that, probably most of the things I would watch would be kind of insufferable. I actually have a lot of problems with old movies. Watching old black and white stuff, I don't typically enjoy them. They have to be really good ones. And I'm not really sure that best picture is the criterion that I would use to pick the good ones. I'm not sure I trust the tastes of the Academy to gel with my own consistently enough for that to be worth my while. I do like the idea of that, though. Um, Kind of being back with my parents has kind of made me realize how I tend to execute, like looking for things to do. Like they will, they will turn on the TV with the intent of finding something to watch and just sort of browse aimlessly around. And they'll try something, and if they don't like it, they'll stop it and try something else. And if they don't like that, on and on, trial and error until they find something that's tolerable enough that they both want to sit through it. It can be kind of a slog. Now, I mean, I don't do that. What I do is I kind of decide in advance, here's something I want to see, and I know that I want to see it for this reason, and I will turn it on. Unless it's really, really terrible, I will see the thing through. I will watch the whole thing, even if it's like not that good of a movie. For me, it's kind of a matter of discipline. Like, if somebody recommended this, if I go into a movie saying, I want to watch this for this good reason, I'm going to let it have the effect that it has on me. And in the end, if I look at it and say, you know, holistically, I didn't enjoy it that much, then that's the way it is. But there have been plenty of movies that I've I've started watching, and if you judge by the first 10 minutes only, then it seems like a pretty bad film. And if you abandon it that early, you miss what comes later. If it improves, I'm not sure you can always judge something based on uh, based on 10 minutes. So I, I, I didn't really notice that about myself until I noticed my parents doing it. I was like, well, I'm kind of glad that I've, I've sort of fallen away from from that. You know, at some point you differentiate yourself in some ways unintentionally. And I'd say that's that's one I'm kind of glad about. I would like to try watching some Hitchcock films. In terms of old classic movies, I think there were some there were some old Hitchcock films that were very very good. North by Northwest is one uh, we rewatched recently. I saw that one when I was very young. 
I saw it many, many times when I was young. So I remember it almost word for word. But the thing is, when I saw it when I was younger, I didn't know what the hell was going on. I didn't understand what the significance of it was. Like I kind of understood the basic plot. But most of the subtleties between the characters, the humor, was completely lost on me. It's weird watching it. And you think, oh, yeah, I remember that. But now I understand it. Uh, very good film, too. Absolutely wonderful movie. Uh, I kind of wonder what else by Hitchcock I might have watched that uh, would be would be good. Rear Window is one that I most certainly want to target at some point. I saw that one maybe only once, but I, I, I've heard that one's among Hitchcock's better films. I do remember really liking Strangers on a Train as well. Uh, for some reason, that whole formula of you have a normal guy who suddenly gets kind of accidentally, certainly not intentionally, wound up uh, with you know life of somebody who's kind of mentally unbalanced. For some reason, that formula kind of works for me most of the time. There's an old Dean Koontz book. I, yes, when I was when I was in middle school, I actually read Dean Koontz. Please don't hold it against me. I was 12. But there's one book that he wrote called The Voice of the Night, which is about two teenagers. And, you know, you start off with the book. One of them is very much a goody two-shoes. The other one is kind of the bad boy rebel. He has an easier time with girls. And, of course, as the book progresses, you kind of get a sense that, okay, the, the bad boy really is – there's some – there's some moral scruples lacking here in a way that is problematic. Like this is going to be bad and sort of devolves from that into, you know, the other kids going along with it. Cause he's just happy to have a friend, you know, he's in the nice goody two shoes. He's just like, Oh yeah, I'm just, I'm just glad that there's somebody that likes me and hangs out that wants to hang out with me. And he knows something about girls. I'm going to go along with this. Whatever he wants to do is, good by me. And at some point he has to realize, oh, you know what, this is going too far. I don't agree with this. And he has to stand up to his friend as a, you know, a kind of antagonist. I like that story. I wouldn't say that was a good book. I don't remember if it was a good book or not. To be perfectly honest, it was so long ago. I don't remember. It might be a great book, but I like that story. I like that idea for a story, the idea of there's a friendship and it sours because somebody's just not moral enough there's just some i'd like to take that story and appropriate it and just that idea those two characters i want to put them into a story of my own and write it somehow where they end up confronting each other and have it be teenagers i think that would be the story of adolescence i would like to tell in some form um, in my own way but I've thought about that for maybe the last few months. I haven't thought of uh, how I would actually bring it to fruition. In any case, I am now home. It is time for dinner. seems like I've rambled about whatever the hell it is I rambled about for the last hour and a half for long enough. I think you've had your fill. This has been great. We should do this again sometime. But for the moment, I hope that out there, wherever you are, you're staying safe from this virus and taking care of yourself and those around you. Be well. Live long. Prosper. Until next time, this is Jim signing off. Do your best. Cheers.